Hi, this is Jacob, and this is episode two of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs, a podcast that brings together the stories of people who are experts in our healthcare system to listen to their experiences and hear their perspectives on value-based care and what we can do to reach it. Today, we will discuss emergencies, unplanned public health disasters, and what actions our government or private sector can do to help us build a high-quality, affordable, and value-based emergency response system. And this is Samaria, co-host of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs. Joining us today is Dr. Suzette McKinney, Chief Executive Officer of the Illinois Medical District and Global Expert in Emergency Preparedness. Suzette is the author with Mary Elise Popke of a new book, Public Health Emergency Preparedness. Suzette, we'd like to talk to you today about what role value-based care plays in emergency preparedness. But before we begin, could you share highlights from your career that have made you an expert in this space? And for the listening audience, we're putting a full bio of Suzette in the show notes because she's an incredible resource and it's good for people interested to learn more about her work. Thank you so much, Samaria, as well as Jacob. It's great to be here with you today. So I actually began my career in public health emergency preparedness in 2002, not long after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City and the subsequent anthrax attacks the following month. And at the time of those two disasters, I had recently completed my master's in public health and was looking for an area of public health where I felt my skills would be best utilized. So I started that year in 2002 serving as the bioterrorism regional coordinator for the city of Chicago's Department of Public Health. I actually spent 14 and a half years working for the city's health department and for the last seven of those years, leading Chicago's efforts toward ensuring that our public health and healthcare systems were prepared for all types of disasters that could occur here in our city. Throughout that time, I also spent time working for the Department of Homeland Security, serving as a senior advisor in their public health preparedness division. And I've also worked with the Department of Defense on an international basis, assisting other countries in preparing for bioterrorism. And so those are just some of the highlights of my career. Uh, I continue to serve on boards and advisory groups for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. I also have a faculty role at the Harvard School of Public Health, as well as the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. Thank you so much, Suzette, and for that great background. You have a lot of great experience, and we're really excited to delve more into it. A couple things you mentioned were, you know, that provoked your interest, for example, are like the anthrax and 9-11, and one thing that, you know, caught our attention as a topic for our podcast series was Bill Gates' work on talking about the like future pandemics. Bill Gates wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago that a severe flu pandemic, for example, could kill more than 33 million people worldwide in just 250 days. And that our public health infrastructure as it stands today is not ready for this type of shock. Kind of with this with this example in mind and something, you know, that sparked our interest, would, would it be possible to give an overview of emergency preparedness, like what your definition is, why it's important, and why this topic is especially relevant today? Sure. So 
emergency preparedness is actually the ability of communities, jurisdictions, and perhaps even governments to prepare for, respond to, and recover effectively from public health emergencies. The idea is that there is enough capability that is developed in advance of the emergency so that once the emergency occurs, the community is able to withstand that emergency and then recover minimally to the level of prior functioning, if not an improved level of functioning. I would say that what contributes to that capability is having the resources and the assets that are necessary in order to develop effective plans and also to have certain capabilities in place. That would include training as well as the ability to conduct drills and exercises to practice and rehearse those plans. And I would also tell you that one of the challenges that we have here in the United States in terms of building effective capability for emergency preparedness is the funding issue. Public health emergency preparedness efforts are funded by the federal government through cooperative agreements or grants. Typically, in the public health and healthcare space, those grants come from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control as well as the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But what we have seen, and I cover this in the book as well, is that since that funding was initiated, in 2001 and 2002, we have continuously seen declines in that funding. To the point about Bill Gates and his concern for pandemic influenza, in 2007, 2008, we saw a bit of an increase in that federal government funding for preparedness because avian influenza was such a concern overseas. But since then, we've, again, seen continuous declines in that funding. And because governments are so, state and local governments, are so heavily dependent on that funding, we've also seen declines in emergency preparedness capability across the country. So this question of funding, you know, I noticed in your book uh, that there were a couple of areas, the hospital preparedness program, the public yes. health emergency preparedness program, and both of them had had pretty dramatic reductions Absolutely. in funding. But what is really intriguing is that um, when I was looking at what the global economic effect was of just trade being reduced during the SARS episode, we found the statistic that if there was, and this would be a repeat of the 1918 flu pandemic, so really probably among the worst that we've seen. But if we had something like that uh, repeat, not only would the U.S. government be expected to have about a $700 billion expense, but the World Bank has estimated the global output would reduce by almost 5%, which they estimate at $4 trillion. And so in that context, and then when you think about value-based care, what's happening? I mean, why is there not more funds uh, that are being directed into this area? And, and maybe it's not always about the amount of funds, but how it's being spent and the governance and what have you. But, but what do you think is going on? Why is there so little traction to spending what it seems sure. should be spent? Sure. There are a couple of issues uh, around the very situation that you just described. So first and foremost, funding for public health in general is very categorical. 
So when the federal government provides funding to public health, whether it's for emergency preparedness or immunizations or STD, HIV, or any other area of public health, the funding is categorical. And what I mean by that is it is designed specifically for that issue. There is no sort of cross-section or cross-integration of that funding. And typically, the restrictions that come along with that funding indicates that you're not allowed to use that funding for another area. So that's the first problem. The second problem, and this is what I would call an inherent problem in public health. The work that we do in public health, and as a result, the successful outcomes that we see in public health are not things that one can typically see happening every day. So for example, public health, you know, the eradication of diseases or the implementation development of vaccines to prevent simple childhood diseases like chickenpox and mumps and things like that. Those are public health successes that most people don't typically think about. When it comes to emergencies and disasters, from a public health and healthcare perspective, there are no buildings blowing up, there are no people collapsing in the streets, and so it's not something that you can see. It's not something that's right in front of you. So when Congress is appropriating funds, they tend to appropriate funds for things that they can see. And so when we have budget crises at the federal level and they are looking for places to cut funding, they cut the things that they don't think are necessary and they don't think this funding is necessary because it's not something that they can physically see. So what, you know, sometimes when we have the situations like the one you described, people recommend the use of stories because they can be so vivid and they can really illustrate um, you know, in people's imaginations, what, sure. what they should be careful of and what they should be trying to protect. I had read recently the Atlantic magazine had a, uh, just in their current edition, has a, a story called When the Next Plague Hits. And in it, they talk about uh, the people that were exposed to SARS in China and how within, I think, six months, SARS had reached 29 countries and infected more than 8,000 people. I've told you before that I was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia a few years ago when I was doing work in the Middle East and uh, read a newspaper article a week later about a person who had been in Jeddah at a healthcare conference, flown to London, then flown to Chicago, and was suspected to be the first case of Middle East respiratory syndrome. And I read it because... In the U.S. In the U.S. In the U.S. And I read it because I had uh, just flown to London and then from London to Chicago. And I was reading the article and I thought, wait, is this me? I mean, this is exactly the same path I took. I was at the same healthcare conference. Uh, do you, can you tell us a little bit about, about that story? Absolutely. That was uh, a very interesting situation. I was actually still at Chicago Department of Public Health when that situation arose. And as it turned out, that healthcare practitioner was the first case of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in the U.S. And the situation unfolded exactly as you described. He traveled from the Middle East, obviously by air, to London. In London, changed planes, flew to Chicago. Um, but the story gets a little deeper from there. Once he landed in Chicago, his original plan was to fly to Philadelphia. 
for a conference taking place there. But he had begun to feel physically ill as he traveled from Saudi Arabia. And by the time he arrived in Chicago, he felt as though he was too sick to continue his travels. So what he did was walk through the airport in Chicago and caught a bus where he took that bus to Indiana, which is where his best friend lived. And he went to stay with his best friend until he could feel better. What was interesting about that situation is that the best friend had a family, a wife and children of his own. He also had other family members visiting from other parts of the country. And so, you know, this gentleman thought that he would recover there. He had one day where, I don't know, I suppose he felt a little better and decided to take a meeting with his accountant. And he went into his accountant's office, sat across the desk for a 45-minute meeting. The accountant became the second case of MERS in the U.S. But not long after that meeting, he fell much more ill was hospitalized, and through a series of testing, it was determined that he did, in fact, have Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. That was a very high-profile and highly visible case because, obviously, it attracted the attention of the federal government. It attracted the attention of the news media. And I can remember sitting in my office one afternoon as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control conducted um, a national-level conference call about how to respond if other cases began to arise in the U.S. And Sanjay Gupta actually covered that conference call for CNN. So it, it was a big deal. It was, I think, the most obvious example that we have had even to date of the fact that infectious diseases know no boundaries. And because of the ease of international travel, it is much easier for us to begin to see more and more of these novel infectious diseases occurring here in the United States. And again, back to Bill Gates and his concern and the many speeches and, that he's given and articles that he's written about pandemic influenza, I think we need to start paying attention to what he's saying, because in my opinion, he's absolutely right. So this raises a question to me about if right now the funding is at the federal level predominantly and the federal level uh, decision makers under pressure to reduce budgets are uh, reducing the, the so-called invisible you know, items where, where they feel that maybe there won't be as much uh, immediate uh, and tangible pain, it puts us in the situation that we're in. In the past, people have taken the approach of having some sort of almost uh, citizen-friendly, you know, clock, like a doomsday clock uh, scenario. And, and, and with, the, with the atomic scientists, that's, that's an example, correct? Yes. I actually sit on the board that sets the doomsday clock. And so with that in mind, is, does the doomsday clock also reflect this kind of man-made, uh, maybe it wouldn't be a man-made disaster. I mean, it could be an organic, you know, uh, pandemic. But is it, does that clock relevant to these kind of problems or do we need a different clock? Well, the clock is relevant. However, the clock doesn't focus specifically on public health emergencies. The clock actually focuses on um, nuclear war, nuclear threats, as well as climate change and other emerging existential threats. So the biological terrorism component 
uh, plays a role, but also the uh, significance and emergence of artificial intelligence being used in a negative way also plays a role. Hmm. So this would be, in some ways, weaponized uh, attacks. Correct. So you know, what I found intriguing about your book and, and I'd like you to speak about this, is that the, the book covered many different kinds of threats, ranging from weaponized uh, CBRNE, which stands for yeah. chemical, biologic, radiologic, nuclear, and explosive, correct? correct? Yes. Uh, but it also speaks about natural disasters, foodborne outbreaks, pandemic influenza, the emerging or re-emerging infectious diseases that you spoke of can sometimes be informed by the increase in global travel. Um, are mass shootings also included in the type of disasters or type of emergencies that your, that your book would address? Sure. I can tell you that initially when the book was conceptualized, mass shootings were really not considered one of those disasters that we needed to be concerned about. And what I will say is in public health, we plan for what we call all hazards disasters. And so that's why you see such a wide range in the types of disasters. But now more and more that we're seeing these mass shootings continue and to grow in their frequency and in many cases to grow in their scope and scale as well. Um, those types of events also create uh, challenges and pressures to our healthcare system. And so that is an area of particular concern to public health. There's an entire chapter in the book about medical surge. And it's about how does the healthcare system absorb such an increase in patients as the result of one of these types of disasters. So at this point in time, mass shootings would be one of those types of disasters that we would also be wanting to prepare for. So what I'm, so with that background, you know, I've just been thinking about the type of threats we've heard of in Chicago uh, over the past couple of years. North Korea has somewhat glibly uh, pointed out that they think that their ICBM could reach Chicago. Yes. I always tell people, um, because I was uh, in a fellowship program at the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, and people were always saying, oh, it's really too bad that people don't talk about Chicago more on the global stage. You know, it's always London and New York and, and D.C. And I said, well, great. Now we finally have somebody talking about Chicago, right, that they can launch an ICBM to us. So maybe we should be careful to say we want higher profile. But we've had the nuclear um, threat. We, had, we learned that the mass shooter in Las Vegas actually had been scouting out Chicago and Lollapalooza as a potential uh, attack, yes. you know, for, for him to, to perpetuate. We, I'm trying to think about, we had the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that you, that you just spoke about. So when I'm, I mean, right now I feel that when I'm choosing cities, I can easily see who has the best bike lanes, where the best walkability scores are. Is there a way that I should be able to see who is the most prepared for these sorts of, uh, for these variety of threats? Sure. I would say there is a way to see that. Many of us who work in public health, some of us agree with the measurements that have been done. Some of us disagree with the measurements that have been done. But about every two years or so, there is a think tank out of Washington, D.C. called the Trust for America's Health, and, or, or TIFA, as we call it in the field. And so about every two years, TIFA releases a report that talks about the level of preparedness that every state 
has achieved. Now, um, in addition to that, they also highlight four cities. And those are the four cities that the federal government recognizes as being at highest risk for terrorism. Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles County, and Washington, D.C. So in, in the TIFA reports, you can see measurements there. There is also a program that is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but is run out of the University of Kentucky, and it's called the National Health Security Preparedness Index. And that is another program that applies measurements to the level of preparedness that they are seeing across countries, across the country, I should say. And oftentimes, uh, you might be able to see some parallels in the rating from TIFA and the ratings from the National Health Security Preparedness Index. But again, as I said in the beginning, some of us in the field agree with those ratings, some of us in the field disagree with those ratings. And in all fairness, I should say that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention also apply a level of measurement to these programs. And so there are things that we can see. Um, there are trends that you can see in certain parts of the country, no matter which measurement tool you look at. Um, and then as you know, we've heard many criticisms about some of these measurement programs and tools, some of them don't accurately reflect all that is happening. And some of them reflect, particularly the National Health Security Preparedness Index reflects more than just the public health and healthcare preparedness components. So there is some variety there, but uh, I think that the best measure for how well a community or a jurisdiction is prepared is when you see an emergency or a disaster occur in a particular community, and then you see how they have handled the situation and how best they are able to recover. In that sense, I would tell you that the city here in the U.S. that has been tested the most clearly is New York City. And so we have had, unfortunately, numerous examples of how New York City responds to various types of disasters and emergencies and how well they're able to recover. Well, so anytime that somebody says that there is disagreement on such an important area, it makes me want to ask, what are the major areas of disagreement? Well, I... I think that's what I touched on in, in my last response. Um, the National Health Security Preparedness Index, and I'm actually very involved with that program. I sit on its National Advisory Board. One of the largest criticisms and areas of disagreement that we've heard about that particular program is that it measures other aspects of emergency management and emergency response that are outside of the realm of public health and the healthcare system. And so it gets a lot of criticism from public health practitioners across the country. But, you know, I always, when I talk to folks about that particular program, I always try and bring them back to the fact, you know, that it isn't just measuring public health preparedness capability. And that is intentional because when one of these public health emergency events occurs, at the end of the day, it's the impact on the healthcare system that really sort of drives the outcome. How well are people who are affected by these disasters able to access healthcare? And how well is the healthcare system able to care for them? And so with the index, we look at 
multiple um, domains and multiple measures that speak to the preparedness of an entire system, not just the public health component. And there are multiple disciplines that um, feed into the healthcare system. Okay, so I think you mentioned earlier, especially based off this last comment, you mentioned earlier the importance of the all hazards framework. Yes. Can you talk, if I understand that correctly, and even just by the name, it means we don't know necessarily what the next problem will be. That's exactly right. It may be man-made, it may be a train derail, it may be accidental, it may be organic, it may be biologic, and, but we're going to have to respond. And maybe there's going to be different groups that activate and need to come online. It may not be always the same groups Correct. that are appropriate for these responses. And so can you tell us a little bit about how did this framework come about? Sure. How widely understood is it? Sure. Okay. So, you know, originally when the funding for public health emergency preparedness was initiated, this was in 2001, 2002, in response to the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Centers in New York City and the anthrax attacks. So in the very beginning, the focus was bioterrorism, very narrowly bioterrorism. But then in 2003, we saw SARS. And across the country, we began to see other things happening in the 2004 range. By 2005, we had Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, more and more large-scale natural disasters began to occur. Um, since then, we've seen, you know, the Joplin, Missouri tornado, that was in 2010. In 2011, I believe it was the earthquake in Haiti, which had a large U.S. response. Um, we've also seen H1N1 and Ebola and Zika virus and many, many, many um, emergencies and disasters. Superstorm Sandy on the East Coast. I forget the year it was, but the um, Eastern Seaboard large-scale power outage. And so over the years, almost every year, there was a different type of emergency or disaster. In my office, we used to call it the disease du jour. But one year, that disease might be a hurricane or some other natural disaster, or it might be a large-scale infectious disease, or it could be something else. And so... As time passed and time progressed and we began to, began to see all of these multiple types of disasters, that came the realization that we could not just focus on bioterrorism because chemical threats were also an issue. That's one I left out, the ricin uh, release in the subway you know, overseas. So we saw that as well. And so that's how this concept of all hazards disasters came about. There are certain components to emergency and disaster response that will be consistent no matter what type of emergency it might be. Those could be things like communication strategies, how you communicate with the media, how you communicate with the public, so on and so forth. It could be epidemiology and surveillance capacity, how you investigate the diseases or the people who are most affected so that you can target your intervention to the people most heavily affected. It could be the medical surge component. So those are capabilities that stretch across any and every type of emergency or disaster. But then depending on the type of emergency that it is, there are specific 
other areas that you would address. So for example, if it was a biological terrorism event where a large number of people are affected, depending on the type of organism, the medical countermeasure that would be provided to save people's lives could be an oral medication, could be a vaccine, and those two types of medications are administered very, very differently. So those, that's where you begin to get into you know, specifics. If it's, a, if it's an explosive device or a mass shooting, you're not necessarily um, dispensing a medical countermeasure, but instead people are flooding the healthcare system to get treatment. So how you accommodate for that surge in patients and the pressure that it places on the healthcare system is also different. But that is how this concept of all hazards disasters came about. The recognition that no matter what the disaster is, we have to be able to respond effectively and we won't always know what it is. So we need to be prepared across the board. Does the all hazards, I want to ask this, the all hazards uh, framework apply only in the geography where we think the, the problem will be, or is there a expanded way of thinking about how do we address the problem before it, before it reaches Chicago or DC or, or New York? And, you know, the question is, is motivated by an article um, that I found that was talking about Kikwit General Hospital in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they had a nosocomial outbreak in 1995. It was the Ebola uh, fever. And today, uh, at least according to this uh, report, the hospital claims that they still have no protective equipment at the hospital. And that if they were to have a similar outbreak, which would it's believed spread even faster than, than the last time due to changes in global travel and such, uh, that they would not be, not be ready. And they do have, it's, it's sort of a, a dark humor, but there was a, a, a quote that I thought was intriguing. They asked one of the administrators, um, what would you do if, if it came back? You know, is there any protective equipment? And, and the person said, well, we would use Article 15. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. I hadn't. And so they say that Article 15 is a Congolese catchphrase referring to a fictional but universally recognized 15th article of the country's constitution. And Samaria, I'll have you uh, say what it is. Okay, so that's the French, and it stands for figure it out yourself. And I thought, right? <laughs> Very interesting. So, so when we think about this framework, could it... When it's being implemented, is there a a way to think about if the threat is coming from abroad, can we apply the the framework to address those well, sources? First, I would say that the concept of a, of preparing for all hazards disasters is certainly something that we use here in the United States. Every city, every county, every state in the U.S., even the federal government emergency response agencies everyone from FEMA to CDC to HHS to DHS to DOD, I mean, you name it. We all use the all hazards framework here in the U.S. What I would say about um, internationally and other countries is I think it would be of great value both to those countries and the United States if they utilize the all hazards concept for preparedness and response as well. But the fact of the matter is planning and preparing for multiple types of emergencies and disasters 
takes resources. It takes funding. It takes staff. It takes training and equipment and, and other resources and assets that, quite frankly, many of our international neighbors don't have. And I, I would say that is why we see the need when large-scale disasters occur internationally, there is this great need for the United States to step in and assist. So one of the areas we wanted to talk about was if you had 15 minutes with the current president of the United States, what would you ask for? Wow, that's a great question. I think what I would ask for in terms of emergency preparedness and response from a public health and healthcare perspective is the understanding that there are people in this country who don't know where their next meals are coming from. And so because they can't figure out how they are going to go to the grocery store to feed their families, the concept of how they would protect themselves and their families in an emergency or disasters is something that is completely out of the realm of what they're able to think about or consider. And for that reason, there are individuals, families, and communities all across this country that would completely depend on the government infrastructure here in the United States, whether it's local, state, or federal, they would completely depend on the government for their health and their safety following one of these disasters. And so I would ask for increased and sustained funding for public health and healthcare to prepare for these emergencies. Because at the end of the day, when one of these things occurs, it is our healthcare system and our public health system that are on the front lines. If it's a criminal event, an explosion, or something of that nature, obviously our first traditional first responders, police, fire, emergency medical services are going to be there and they are going to be doing their jobs quite effectively. But we tend to not think as much about the healthcare system and the public health system. So that's what I would ask for, increase in sustained funding. Are there any role models? Are there any countries that are doing a better job? You know, what I would say is, um, you know, and this is going to take us into a different realm, but uh, I won't say that there are countries that are necessarily doing a better job. What I will say is that those countries who have developed and implemented and continuously utilize universal health care, there is always the understanding that the health care needs of their citizens will be taken care of. And while we do have um, the Affordable Care Act here in the United States, we still yet don't um, do the best job at taking care of the most vulnerable among us. And unfortunately, in these large-scale emergencies and disasters, it is the most vulnerable among us that will be most heavily impacted. That's really interesting because I think maybe what you're getting to there is that in a healthcare system where the expectation is that everybody will have access that's correct. That over time you learn how to provide access maybe. Absolutely. And 
there is, I think here with so many people just not having regular access or only having access to emergency rooms or such like that, there may be a sense of how do we make it possible? How do they know where to go when they have an emergency because they don't normally know where to go? Is that, is that sort of the, the point? Yes, but not only that, not only where do, how do they know where to go? How do we as responders know where to go to reach them? Some of the most vulnerable among us may have a physical disability and aren't able to go. So how do we get to them? How do we know where they are? How do we best provide for their needs? If, uh, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, and I have great, great respect for Dr. Karen DeSalvo, and she was the health commissioner in New Orleans after Katrina. And she worked afterwards with the Department of Health and Human Services on a project that was designed for identifying people who utilize electricity-dependent medical equipment at home. Because obviously, in a natural disaster where the electricity is affected, that is a direct impact on the health of these individuals. If you are using an electricity-dependent breathing machine at home and you lose electricity, how do you breathe? And so uh, that project was extremely effective in developing the ability to identify where these persons were prior to an emergency happening so that if and when something happened, that city would know not only who these people were, but where they were, what their specific needs were, and how to address them. And so I would say when it comes to caring for those that are most vulnerable among us, it goes both ways. Equipping them with the information that they need to know to protect themselves, but also equipping the first responder system with the information that we need to know how to access and, and provide for the needs. Yeah, and emergency preparedness, you know, as we've discussed, is about protecting security, infrastructure, and other assets. But to your point, Suzette, at its core, it's about protecting people. And with that comes the issue of ethics. How have you seen, like, ethics be violated in these settings? And what are some ethics, like, protocols being used in the emergency preparedness landscape? Sure. I would say that from an ethics perspective, in terms of violations, you know, I don't, I haven't seen any examples where jurisdictions or governments have intentionally been ethically dishonest. However, you know, if you are an able-bodied person, someone else's inability to do the things that you can do typically just don't come to mind. And so I think that that is the biggest sort of violation is that we have to train ourselves to understand that not everyone can function necessarily the way that we can function. And so to that end, um, a, a, a lot of work has been done around ethical considerations and also how the legal system plays into ethical considerations and emergency preparedness as well. Back in 2009, the Department of Health and Human Services, through the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, commissioned the National Academies of Medicine to explore this issue. And it was a direct result of both Hurricane Katrina and H1N1. 
And so uh, the ASPR asked the Institute of Medicine at the time to develop protocols and a framework for addressing what they called crisis standards of care. And crisis standards of care dealt with two overarching issues. One, how does the healthcare system continue to provide care when their facilities have been damaged to the point that they can't provide care the way they normally would? Or if the system, the healthcare system, is so overwhelmed because it's seeing such an increased surge in patients, how does it continue to provide care? Are the care standards modified? If so, in what way? And in that modification, how are we accommodating needs and making decisions from an ethical standpoint? And then the other overarching issue was when resources are so severely scarce, how do we prioritize the allocation of those resources? And so since those tools and the framework for crisis standards of care has been developed, requirements for conducting that level of planning have been placed in the preparedness grants that CDC and HHS distribute to states across the country and those four high-risk cities every single year. And so at this point in time, now in 2018, all 50 states, those four high-risk cities, as well as eight territories, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and I can never remember the others, but all of them have requirements in their grant guidance documents that require them to conduct this level of planning. Now, what I will tell you is that across the United States and those other grantees, the uh, levels of preparedness for crisis standards of care are different. Some jurisdictions are farther ahead than others, but I think what's important is that we are all thinking about it, we are all planning for it, and we are all working toward the highest level of ethical and legal standards that we can. But I will tell you, that is probably, in my experience, the most difficult aspect of planning that we've ever dealt with. Because when you are engaging with healthcare practitioners, doctors, nurses, and other clinicians, you know, their moral values play a role in how they provide care. And so I've seen it very difficult to get clinicians and public health professionals and government officials to all come to a level of agreement in terms of how to implement these protocols um, from an ethical standpoint. I think that moving to moving back to the concept earlier, which you were talking about, about budgets being uh, funded primarily at the federal level, there being an absence of, um, or I guess I should say that the funds are, are carefully earmarked for particular areas. So you can't have cross spending. There's, it doesn't sound like it's sort of a block ability to, to get funds and spend it right. uh, where, where you think it best is to be spent. When I think about value-based care, I think of just a numerator and a denominator, you know, and the, uh, and at the top, you think of the outcomes uh, that you're hoping, you know, to achieve or that you want to achieve. And in the denominator, you think of the dollars that you're spending and then it's outcomes per dollar. And that's a, a basic way of thinking about it. When we talk about the all hazards response, it sounds like sort of a brilliant way to get 
the most out of every dollar that's spent because you're really building this adaptive framework and it can Absolutely. deal with all these different areas. And yes, today it's primarily domestic, but you know, if it was global, then it could be generating even more you know, value, I think, for every dollar that's spent. And then you know, when you think of the denominator, though, I, it doesn't sound like there's really a, a system to determine what the correct amount of spending would be. Whatever it is, it seems that we're falling well short of it. Yes. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Bill Gates' articles and all the rest. So or the Atlantic saying, what do we do when the next disaster strikes, to paraphrase there, when the next plague hits, you know, is the name of their article. So it seems that everybody who's looking at the subject says, boy, the denominator is wrong. But what, what do we do to figure out what the denominator should be and then who does that message go to? Maybe does it go to the, to the governors? Does it go to, uh, directly to citizens? I mean, how can we figure out how to, how to jack up the sure. number to where it ought to be? You know, it's very difficult to determine what the number should be. But back to what my request of our president would be, and I said increased and sustained funding. Because again, while we don't know what the denominator should be, what we do know is when that figure is constantly declining, even when we've been able to build capability, that capability declines as the funding declines. And so, um, again, I would say it's very difficult to identify what the denominator should be. However, if we could sort of bump it up a bit, and, you know, the number I would say at this point is probably arbitrary because no one knows what the number should be. But we need to bump it up a bit and then we need to leave it there. Because then what we know is that we can build capability and we can sustain that capability if we can depend on the fact that the resources and assets that we've been able, whether it's tangible equipment that we've been able to purchase or planning that we've been able to do in terms of what well, of all these types of disasters but then also training the emergency response system and we can keep that training updated it helps us ensure that we can maintain the level of capability that we've built i think that um, there is a recognition of the need to um, better integrate some of uh, these funding mechanisms to public health and the healthcare system. I've seen a few things here and there where there have been attempts, but it's certainly not at the level where it needs to be. Um, so the categorical issue continues to be a problem. And that also goes for cross-discipline. So there is funding for public health and healthcare, but there's also funding through the Department of Homeland Security for police, for fire, for emergency management. And again, there's no integration there with public health either, but yet we're all working together when there is an emergency response. And so, you know, I know that that doesn't completely answer your question in terms of what the denominator should be, but that's only because we don't know. And because, as Bill Gates pointed out, flu mutates pretty much every year. And so there's always a new strain, you know, there's always a new disaster, a new emergency. And if it's not new, the scope and scale might be different than what we've seen before. So it is extremely difficult to pinpoint how much is enough. But I think the key is, um, as long as we continue to see that funding decline, 
then we're going to continue to see our capability decline. And that's the bigger problem. Yeah, so maybe one aspect of value-based care needs to be stability. Yes. Okay. I want to ask you also, you know, we've, we've spoken about the government and what, what their role has been and how maybe it could be improved. From the private sector, I want to ask, are there, from an investment perspective, when you think about what you would like to see venture capitalists investing in or corporations investing in, in order to have a, a better uh, response for emergencies, are there any things that come to mind from the private sector? Oh, absolutely. I have to say I was very intrigued by the latest article on Bill Gates in The Atlantic because it spoke about the funding that he is putting up to invest in the development of a universal flu vaccine. I felt as, as I was reading that I was sitting in my seat cheering because that's the type of thinking that we need coming from the private sector. How do we leverage uh, investment? and innovation to tackle some of these big problems. Um, one of the other opportunities that I see for the private sector is really working very closely with governments to figure out solutions and to figure out how private sector capability can be leveraged in some of these emergencies and disasters. I can tell you that one area where we've seen the private sector really step up is in working with governments around logistics capability for dispensing of medical countermeasures. We've seen retail pharmacies across the country step up, particularly in H1N1, to provide vaccinations when, when that was an issue for H1N1. We've seen some of the big box retailers step up and offer their logistics capability when the public health and healthcare system need to move large amounts of medication and medical equipment. Um, but I think um, really applying some critical thinking to these issues and identifying where innovation, along with capital investment, along with just some of the strategies that are utilized in the private sector, how those things can be applied to some of these very, um, what I would call, rigid government processes. Um, but I think it's not just the private sector sort of offering that up, but I think the government, government entities also need to be open to accepting some of uh, those private sector interventions. I think I read that WhatsApp became used in a really large way uh, in, in maybe a recent outbreak for all the public health workers, and they just started using uh, the WhatsApp communication tool, oh, messaging I, tool, you know? I have not heard that. Yeah. I'm thinking also that you know, I've been consulting for the last several months with a telemedicine company. And last year, as you may know, was an enormous spike in flu here in the U.S. Yes. And it was uh, really, you know, really interesting for the telemedicine companies in the space because all of a sudden their caseload dramatically increased. And it was, it was sort of the regular flu and, and actually, I think, uh, proved the point of how telemedicine can really be a very convenient uh, service and, and helpful for people. But I couldn't help but think about, well, what would happen if the flu that people were calling about was this type of uh, more, more deadly flu 
is there a role for the private telemedicine companies today to be greater integrated into the uh, public health responsiveness and, and are they to your knowledge? Well, there is absolutely a role for the private telemedicine companies. I will, um, I'll give you an example a hypothetical example to, to answer that question. So, you know, we've talked about all hazards disasters, but just think about a natural disaster, any kind, hurricane, tornado, earthquake, you name it. Um, but a natural disaster makes roads impassable because, you know, you have trees down, you have electrical lines down, and it takes time for first responders to clear the roads, and people cannot access their physician's offices or their local hospitals, how do they, but they need help, they need care, they need attention from a physician, then uh, telemedicine becomes the, the key and the solution to providing that care. So I would definitely say that there is a role for telemedicine. Um, there are some jurisdictions across the country that have been a little forward thinking when it comes to telemedicine and they've included telemedicine at least as a capability in their planning. I think for the private sector telemedicine companies, there's an opportunity to sort of study some of these cases of multiple types of disasters that we've seen across the country and determine how best to get that telemedicine capability into communities, whether it's hospitals, physicians, offices, but also non-traditional spaces that people might actually be able to get to so that that capability can be better utilized and more widely utilized in an emergency when people are unable to access healthcare in the more traditional way. I want to talk also about something in your book that surprised me. It possibly shouldn't have if I had had a, you know, a deeper background already, but you spoke about the role of the mental health uh, professional yes. and how there's such an extreme demand uh, both for there to be adequate mental health resources, both for people who are affected as um, outside of the first responder community, but also the first responder community. Yes. Telemedicine, it caught my attention because one of the secondary areas that all telemedicine companies are focused on providing right now is in the therapy and psychiatry area and behavioral health support. Mm -hmm. It's not very highly utilized uh, today, but it struck me as, as saying if it's so important for all these types of, of disasters, how common is it today that people are getting the level of behavioral health resources that are needed? You know, it continues to be a problem. Um, behavioral health is one of those things that, you know, again, that it's something that we don't typically think about unless we're affected by it. But throughout the course of my career, one of the things that I've seen quite often is that after an emergency occurs, so you have people who experience challenges with mental health when there's not a crisis or when there's not an emergency happening. And so when an emergency happens, those people might be even more heavily impacted from a mental health perspective. But what we've also seen is that, you know, people who typically don't experience challenges with their mental health can also be impacted from a mental health perspective. And then there is also the first responder community as well. 
And so mental health has quite honestly emerged as one of these areas where we need to be paying closer attention to and where we need to be working to ensure that there is adequate capacity for mental health response in the midst of a larger emergency response. Well, I want to ask a closing question. Okay. And it is about, you know, what's achievable within the next decade. Mm -hmm. We think that, you know, we're reading all the articles now. Before we started recording, I said to you that one of the reasons we're doing the podcast is that anybody who's worked in healthcare uh, responds when they when when you say to them, boy, you know, this is such an interesting topic. Uh, it seems like we've been stuck for a while, and we're talking about an article that came out this month. But there's actually articles that came out in 1995 that are relevant. Sure. You know, so how do we break out of uh, almost having a status quo remain? What what is possible in the next 10 years for us to have a stronger value based health sure. system? You know, I think one of the challenges that we have as Americans, you know, is that, you know, we become very complacent. So something big and bad happens. We throw all of our resources at it. We address it immediately. And then once it's over, we forget about it. And we don't learn from, we don't learn lessons from prior disasters. And so I think that that is definitely something that can change in a big way in the next 10 years, because guess what, folks, learning is free. You know, we can look at past disaster events, we can look at how we've addressed those, whether it's as a community or a nation as a whole, and we can extract lessons from those disasters that help us improve our response and therefore our capability moving on to the next disaster. So that's definitely something that can change. But I think probably the biggest change that we need, two things. One, we need our federal government and we need our Congress to make a bigger investment in public health and healthcare system funding so that we can advance our capability beyond where it is now and so that we can sustain it. But to your point, Jacob, we also need the private sector to step in in a big way like Bill Gates has done and really put his money where his mouth is. This is a concern that he has about pandemics and he is stepping up and saying, listen, I'm so concerned about it that I'm making a big investment um, toward, you know, companies and entities that can use innovative techniques and tools to address this issue of developing a universal vaccine against pandemic strains of flu. And so if we could see more of the private sector offering these large, significant contributions, whether it is capital investment or innovation, or even strategies and capabilities that they utilize in the private sector. I think that we will advance significantly in the next 10 years. But at the end of the day, it is going to take all of us. And when I say all of us, um, it is the whole community that I'm speaking about. You probably saw that in the book, that when it comes to preparing for emergencies and disasters, it is not just the responsibility of the government. It is everyone's responsibility. Individuals, families, communities, nonprofits, the private sector, and the government, all working together in concert, applying our experiences, our expertise, our knowledge, and our education to tackling these issues. 
I think that's a fantastic way to wrap up our discussion and and thank you so much for that. We just have one more bonus question we like to ask our guests. (laughs) What is one book, podcast, or other resource you would recommend to the audience to continue either learning about emergency preparedness or other value-based topics that you believe are important? Wow. There are so many that are out there. Um, You know, I'm a public health person, you know, at heart, and I use an interesting tactic in one of my classes that I teach because, and I do this because typically people, all right, let's just say large scale infectious diseases, people have a hard time understanding how these diseases are perpetuated and how they are spread. And so you know, our, our American culture is big into pop culture, right? We follow social media, we watch movies, we watch television, so on and so forth. And so I can tell you that one of the most realistic movies that I've ever watched, and it's, it's old at this point, is the movie Contagion. And so in one of the classes that I teach, at the end of the semester, I have my students, and I will tell you, throughout the semester, we've learned about medical surge and communication and medical um, material uh, dispensing and distribution, and we've learned about all of these various capabilities related to emergency response. At the end of the semester, I have them watch the movie Contagion. And if you haven't seen it, again, it's many years old. I think it was came out in 2011, Um, the way that this deadly disease was spread in that movie was, you know, a chef in a restaurant handling raw meat did not wash his hands. The meat was infected. He didn't wash his hands. He just sort of wiped them on his apron. And then he went out into the restaurant and greeted clients, greeted people eating at the restaurant, shook hands. And that's how the disease was spread. And Today, in 2018, I cannot tell you how many times I go into a public restroom, someone comes in, they do whatever they need to do, and then they leave without washing their hands. And so rather than a book or a podcast, I would suggest that people watch that film and watch very carefully the devastating impact that that disease had, not just on that community, but an entire country. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Suzette, this has been amazing. It's been our privilege and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you.